female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He ripped her face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Hey there, hi there, hello there, and welcome back to Man. It is the only true crime podcast on the whole goddamn internet where all the killers are real animals, whether it's biting, scratchings, maulings, or clawings. We're here to talk about it, baby. I'm your host, James Chapman, and today we have a new edition of our sub-series, sub-species, sub-series, uh, Killer Cryptids, the show where we talk all about the, uh, yeah, the real spooky-dooky uh, <laughs> cryptids. What am I talking about? <laughs> I'm having a stroke. Cryptids. Um, in the world, all those uh, mythological animals those animals that we're not sure if they exist or not. And today, we are talking about the Kraken. Of course, last week, we did a whole episode on cephalopods, like octopuses and squids in real life that attack people. And today, this is kind of like the spiritual successor to that episode. We are talking about one of the most famous cryptids of all time, the Kraken, a very unique... Um, a very unique cryptid because uh, it kind of exists, you know, like they, um, you know, like for, for thousands of years, there have been stories of these, uh, you know, giant tentacled sea monsters attacking ships. And then it turned out we discovered, you know, later on in history that it kind of is true, like uh, colossal squids and giant squids and all that uh, could attack ships, probably not to the extent of uh, what we're going to learn about today. Uh, but it does live in, in that sort of uh, very unique place in the history and in the, in the in the annals in the annals of uh cryptids uh you know like a lot of animals like this like we didn't know that gorillas were real until like i think it was like 400 years 200 years ago or something like that they they thought that was like a, a cryptid as well like a mythical beast that heard stories of these big furry men that lived in the mountains and could rip you apart but they didn't think it was real uh, and then obviously they uh they're very real and now we watch them in zoos throwing bottles at people have you seen, have you seen that great video it was on tiktok some threw a like a water bottle into a gorilla enclosure at a zoo somewhere i think in china and the, <laughs> the gorilla just pegs it back with just the utmost velocity and in, in, incredible accuracy just pegs the guy right in the face it's it's brilliant i highly recommend if you can find it google gorilla drink bottle actually that's probably some kind of drink bottle company that has like a google like like a like a like a gorilla branding i don't know I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm a little, I'm a little hungover, guys. I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm a little tired. I'm a little hungover, but fear not, because uh, today's episode it will, it'll snap you out of it. It'll snap me out of it. So let's just dive on in there. Get it? Dive on in, because we're going back into the ocean this week, as we uh, look at the history of the killer cryptid, the Kraken. In the annals of maritime mythology, there's no creature quite as captivating and mysterious as the Kraken. With its massive tentacles, eerie allure, and its reputation as a harbinger of doom, the Kraken has embedded itself deeply into the collective human imagination. Emerging from the shadows of historical accounts and folklore, the Kraken's journey through time and culture offers a fascinating glimpse into the interplay between human curiosity, fear of the unknown, and the power of human storytelling. 
Now, the origin of the Kraken legend can be traced all the way back to the seafaring traditions of Northern Europe, particularly Scandinavia. One of the earliest written references to the Kraken appears in Ulus Magnus's Historia de Gentibus Septuaginta, which essentially means histories of the northern peoples. This was published in 1555. Magnus, a Swedish cartographer and historian, described a massive sea creature with tentacle-like appendages capable of dragging entire ships beneath the waves. This seminal work established the framework for the Kraken's evolution in subsequent centuries. Magnus's account drew from a rich tapestry of Nordic and Scandinavian folklore, where the seas held a prominent place in the lives of the people. These societies relied heavily on fishing and maritime trade, and often facing the treacherous conditions of the North Atlantic. The presence of formidable creatures lurking in the depths could be perceived as both a real threat and a symbol of the uncontrollable forces of nature. Central to the Kraken mythology are its colossal size and fearsome tentacles. While descriptions have varied over time, common accounts portray the Kraken as a gargantuan creature with tentacles that could span the length of a ship and more. These tentacles were said to be adorned with massive suction cups, each endowed with an unparalleled gripping force capable of ensnaring even the sturdiest of vessels. The Kraken's limbs were often depicted as rising from the depths, coiling around ships and dragging them beneath the waves in a watery embrace of doom. Legends of the Kraken's ability to generate powerful maelstroms added to its mistake. Sailors spoke of whirlpools emerging in the wake of the Kraken's movements, capable of consuming everything in their path. These vortexes symbolized the unfathomable power of the sea and the danger it posed to those who dared to challenge it. The Kraken, embodying both the unknown depths and the tumultuous surface of the ocean, came to epitomize the hazards and the wonders of maritime exploration. Now, while the legend of the Kraken has captivated the human imagination for centuries, it is important to note that historical accounts of ships being attacked by the Kraken are scarce and often blend myth with reality. Many of the stories that have circulated over time are likely exaggerations or embellishments, fueled by seafarers' tales and the rich maritime folklore of various cultures. Here are a couple examples that have been passed down through history. The 18th century account by Bishop Eric Pontopian, Pontopidan, Pontopidan, Bishop Eric Popopidan, Pontopidan, a Danish Norwegian scholar, included a detailed account of the Kraken in his work The Natural History of Norway, published in 1755. The bishop cited reports from Norwegian sailors who claimed to have witnessed encounters with the Kraken. According to these accounts, the Kraken would rise from the depths, creating a whirlpool that drew in ships and sailors. The bishop's account, whilst not first-hand, contributed to the Kraken's mythos and helped solidify its place in maritime folklore. The Swedish warship The Princess 
An account from the 18th century tells of a Swedish warship named the Princess that allegedly encountered a sea monster near the coast of Norway in 1752. The crew reported seeing a creature with a long neck and a massive body. They described its appearance as similar to a gigantic octopus or squid. The ship's captain ordered the crew to fire cannons at the creature, but it reportedly vanished beneath the waves before any significant damage could be done. This account, however, is fraught with inconsistencies and could have been influenced by the prevailing Kraken legend of the time. The account of Pierre-Denis de Montfort. In the early 19th century, French naturalist Pierre-Denis de Montfort published an account in his, <laughs> here we go, Historie naturelle générale et peculiar de cephalopods octaphorbios <laughs> in 1801. I'm going to translate that later in the story, don't worry. In which he described a sea monster with eight arms that sailors called a pupped colossal or colossal octopus. Montfort's account, whilst not exclusively tied to the Kraken legend, contributed to the maritime mythology surrounding large sea creatures. It is important to approach these historical accounts with scepticism, as they were often influenced by cultural beliefs, misunderstandings of natural phenomena, and the tendency of stories to evolve over time. While these anecdotes provide a glimpse into how the Kraken myth was woven into the maritime narratives, they should be viewed through a lens of historical context. Now, as the Kraken myth spread, it transcended its original Nordic roots and found its way into the narratives of cultures around the world. In the 18th and 19th centuries, European explorers encountered new lands and new people, often bringing with them tales of the Kraken. These stories blended with existing folklore, creating a tapestry of global maritime mythology intertwined with fact and fiction, reality and imagination. The Kraken's captivating image has also found a home in literature and art. Herman Melville's iconic Moby Dick introduced readers to a colossal squid that bore striking resemblances to the Kraken. Melville's imaginative rendering of the monstrous cephalopod further solidified the Kraken's place in popular culture, immortalizing it as a symbol of the deep's mystery and danger. Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, published in 1870, marked another pivotal moment in the Kraken's journey throughout literature. Verne's depiction of a fierce battle between Captain Nemo's ship, the Nautilus, and a colossal squid captured the tension between human ingenuity and the alien wonders lurking below the surface. This portrayal combined scientific fascination with the Kraken's aura of enigma, echoing humanity's ceaseless quest to uncover the secrets of the ocean's depths. The Kraken's influence extends beyond literature and into visual arts, where depictions of the creature adorned maps, paintings, and other forms of visual representation. These artistic renditions serve not only as embellishments, but also as reflections on the cultural psyche, capturing humanity's simultaneous awe and trepidation towards the unknown. Throughout history, the Kraken has been a popular subject in visual arts, appearing in various forms of artistic expression, ranging from illustrations to paintings to modern digital art. 
These depictions often capture the awe, fear, and the mystery associated with the mythical sea creature. Here are a few examples of famous artworks that, that depict the Kraken. In 18, sorry, in the 1880s, the Kraken by John Tenniel was painted. John Tenniel, best known for his illustrations in Lewis Carroll's Alice and <laughs> Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, created a dramatic depiction of the Kraken. In this artwork, the Kraken emerges from the depths, its massive tentacles coiling around a ship as sailors attempt to fend off the creature. The illustration captures the sense of impending doom and the struggle of humanity against the forces of the deep sea. In 1801, Pierre Denis de Montfort, which we talk, who we talked about earlier, a French naturalist, included an illustration of a kraken attacking a sailing ship in his book, and I read the really long name before, the English translation is General and Peculiar Natural History of Arctophubiferous Cephalopods. The artwork shows a monstrous creature with eight long arms wrapping around a ship's hull. Montfort's depiction contributed to the maritime law surrounding large sea creatures. Uh, this was entitled Kraken Attacking a Sailing Ship. And if you go on the Instagram where I post the, uh, basically the, uh, the notifications of all the new episodes, that is the painting I'm talking about, which is the most recent post that you'll be seeing on the Instagram. The next painting we're going to talk about is simply titled The Kraken by Gustave Dore which was uh, painted in the, in the 1870s. Gustave Dore, a renowned French artist, created an evocative engraving of the Kraken as part of his illustrations for Alfred Tennyson's The Idols of the King. The artwork depicts the Kraken's massive form rising from the depths of the ocean with its tentacles extended upwards. Dore's mastery of light and shadows adds to the dramatic effect, emphasizing the creature's mythological imposing presence. Hosaku, how do I say his name? Hokuse, Hokuse, the Kraken by Hokuse Katsushika from the 1830s. A Japanese Yurikoi, I can't pronounce these words, artist created a woodblock print that offers a unique interpretation of the Kraken. In this artwork, the Kraken is portrayed as a monstrous cephalopod with its tentacles curling around a ship. The artist's use of intricate details and dynamic composition captures the essence of the Kraken's myth and its impact on maritime culture. And finally, the most recent, Release the Kraken by Henrik Nordenberg from 2010. This modern digital artwork by Henrik Nordenberg portrays the Kraken as a dynamic and action-packed scene. The artwork features a fearsome Kraken emerging from the depths to attack a ship as sailors scramble to defend themselves. The phrase, release the kraken, has become a pop culture catchphrase, further highlighting the creature's enduring presence in modern media. Now, these artworks, spanning different time periods and artistic styles, offer a glimpse into the ways the kraken has been portrayed over the centuries, whether capturing the creature's omniscient presence, the struggle of sailors against its grasp, or the awe-inspiring mystery of the deep. These depictions reflect the enduring fascination that the kraken continues to evoke in both artists and audience alike. The Kraken story continues to evolve into the modern era, finding new life in popular culture. Films, television shows, video games, and more have drawn inspiration from the Kraken's myth, reimagining it for a contemporary audience. Notably, the Pirates of the Caribbean film franchise popularized the Kraken as a supernatural sea monster summoned to enforce maritime laws, codes, and curses. 
In this adaption, the Kraken became a fearsome and destructive entity, embodying the darker side of the ocean's power and the unpredictable forces that sailors have long feared. By weaving the Kraken into a tale of pirates and curses, the franchise paid homage to its historical roots whilst adding a layer of fantastical storytelling that resonates with modern audiences. As I mentioned before, the phrase release the Kraken has become a popular catchphrase in modern culture, often used in a dramatic or humorous context to signal the unleashing of something powerful or formidable. However, its origin is relatively recent and can be traced back to the 2010 film Clash of the Titans, a remake of the 1981 film of the same name. In the 2010 film, Release the Kraken is uttered by the character Zeus, played by Liam Neeson. In the movie, Zeus commands the release of the Kraken, a massive sea monster, to wreak havoc upon the mortal realm as a means of punishing humanity. The phrase is used as a climactic moment in the film, signifying the impending doom that the Kraken's unleashed power represents. The scene and the line itself quickly gained attention and became a meme in internet culture. Uh, in fact, one of those memes hits very close to home. Uh, I live in Newcastle in Australia, and the federal uh, the state member for, uh, for Newcastle is a man named Tim Krakenthorpe. Um, and so when he was running for his office, uh, I think someone graffitied his office and made it made it say, release the Krakenthorpe. Uh, and the Krakenthorpe was released. He was elected, although I'm pretty sure today he lost his cabinet position because he didn't declare uh, some earnings or some property that he owned. So uh, sucks to suck. Sorry, bud. The combination of Liam Neeson's delivery and the awe-inspiring presence of the Kraken, as well as the dramatic orchestral score, created a memorable cinematic moment. As a result, release the Kraken entered the popular culture as a catchphrase used humorously and dramatically in various contexts. Now, beyond the myth, the fiction, and the art, there is an intriguing connection between the Kraken's legend and the real-world wonders of the deep sea. The existence of colossal and giant squids, deep-sea creatures with massive eyes, powerful tentacles, and an elusive nature, has fueled speculation that these animals may have contributed to the Kraken's mythology. Encounters with these creatures, especially in a state of decomposition, could have given rise to exaggerated accounts that were woven into maritime folklore. In recent decades, scientific exploration has yielded remarkable discoveries that add a layer of credibility into the Kraken's legendary attributes. The colossal squid, for instance, inhabits the deepest and darkest reaches of the ocean. Though not matching the colossal proportions of the Kraken, the colossal squid possesses many of the features that resonate with the mythical creature, including immense eyes, a fearsome beak, and long, powerful tentacles. Now, while not often able to drag ships under the water, colossal squids do offer a glimpse into the kinds of creatures that could have been inspired, that could have inspired the Kraken's exaggerated attributes. The Kraken stands as a testament to the enduring power of myth and the interplay between human imagination and the mysteries of the natural world. Emerging from the maritime traditions of the Northern Europeans, the Kraken's myth has evolved over the centuries, shaping cultures and transcending its origins. It embodies humanity's simultaneous fascination with and fear of the unknown depths of the sea, serving 
as a symbol of the untamed forces that continue to stir our collective human curiosity. The Kraken's legacy extends beyond its mythic stature, offering insights into the intricate dance between storytelling and reality. As science continues to peel back the layers of the ocean's mysteries, the Kraken reminds us that while some of the legends featured find resonance in the natural world, its enduring allure is a testament to humanity's enduring need to explore, understand, and grapple with the world's enigmatic wonders. Whether a creature of pure fantasy or a reflection of real-world marvels, the Kraken remains an iconic symbol of the vast and mysterious depths that continue to beckon us into the unknown. And that, my friends, is the story of the Kraken, a myth that continues to be developed even into the modern age. Uh, an extremely interesting uh, piece of folklore originating in Northern Europe, particularly Scandinavia, uh, and then eventually reaching all throughout the world. Um, the Kraken was one of the first animals I was aware of that, that was not a real animal. Uh, my parents had a copy of the, um, the, the, the French guys <laughs> with a really long name um, in their house. I remember seeing it when I was a kid, so maybe it was on the internet or Maybe that it was in a book or something, but I remember it very vividly. And I remember asking, is this real? And my parents were like, uh, I don't know, <laughs> maybe people think it might be real. Uh, and I find it very, you know, interesting. It's very unique that, um, you know, this myth, you know, it, it would be like if we, um, you know, we collectively, re you know, as a culture, <laughs> generally believe that dragons are not real. Uh, but... It would be like if we went into a cave one day and there were just dragons and there were dragons and there had always been dragons. That would be the equivalent of what's um, what's going on with, with the Kraken. Uh, so yeah, really interesting. And it's really interesting how it ties back in with a lot of the stuff we talked about last week uh, in the Attack of the Cephalopods episode. So if you haven't listened to that, definitely go back and listen to that. We talk about the reality of um, these sea creatures, these cephalopods uh, and, you know, and, and what they actually have done they have attacked ships um although not to the scale of of the kraken of course guys we're gonna take a break now we'll hear some messages and we'll be back so uh sit back and have a break This episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsors over on Patreon.com. If you don't know what Patreon is, which I'm sure you, you're listening to a podcast, everyone's on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows you to support the art that you like. Uh, and we have a small but faithful little army of um, Patreon patrons. And in this little segment, we're going to shout them out. So first, I would like to say a big thank you to the delightful Dawn... And then I would like to say a, a great big thank you to the, I haven't planned these out in advance, the R R uh, Riley, who is ridiculously cool. And finally, I would like to say a big thank you to the marvelous Marcy, who is our newest sponsor over on Patreon. If you would like to join these wonderful human beings, you can do so if you head to patreon.com slash maneaters. Uh, you can check us out. There's exclusive content that gets posted there, uh, you know, interviews, uh, Q&As, uh, early access to episodes. I will also flag what episodes are coming up in the future, uh, and it's just a great way to communicate to me as well. You can send messages and we can have a chat. And it's all good. So uh, head over to patreon.com slash maneaters to see how you can support the show. 
All right, back to the episode. And we are back. Thank you again to everyone over on Patreon. Okay, we're going to do something a little bit different this episode. Because the Killer Cryptid segment just before was quite short, uh, comparatively short, it was only about 15 minutes, um, we're going to do something else. I'm going to do a, a little mini Cryptid uh, killer cryptid episode for you here, okay? So we're going to find um, cryptids who don't have a, as much information on them as, say, the Kraken or the Loch Ness Monster or the Mothman. Little mini ones uh, that have a little bit of, you know, interesting culture, but not a lot of information on the internet readily available. So one of the ones that I've always wanted to cover is the Mongolian Death Worm. There's just not a lot of information out there. So it's a good opportunity now to talk about it. It's kind of like our beastly biography over on the regular episodes, where we talk about an animal that we never really get a chance to talk about. We're going to do that now with the Mongolian deathworm. So, the Mongolian deathworm. Deep within the arid and mysterious landscapes of the Gobi Desert, a creature of legendary proportions is said to lurk, a creature known as the Mongolian deathworm. With its vivid red color, serpentine form, and reputed deadly abilities, this cryptid has captured the imaginations of adventurers, cryptozoologists, and enthusiasts for generations. As a cryptid, the Mongolian deathworm resides at the crossroads of folklore, myth, and potential reality, weaving a narrative that speaks to humanity's fascination with the unknown and the uncharted. The Mongolian deathworm's origins can be traced to the myths and stories of the indigenous people of the Gobi Desert, particularly Mongolian nomads. The Mongolian, no, sorry, known as the Olgoi Korkhoi in the Mongolian language, the creature is described as a large, bright red worm-like entity that can grow to be around two to five feet in length and up to a few inches in diameter. The creature is said to have a distinctive, rough, and wrinkled skin that is reminiscent of a dried animal's carcass. What distinguishes the Mongolian deathworm from other cryptids is its reputed ability to kill its prey or even humans by releasing an electrical discharge or toxic substance. It is said to emerge from beneath the desert sands during the summer's hot months, particularly after heavy rains when the ground becomes moist. I love that word, moist. Accounts of the creature's appearance and behavioral behavioral variety, but uh, sorry, accounts of the creature's appearance and behavior vary, but most descriptions depict it burrowing underground and leaving behind distinctive tracks on the surface. Now, in Mongolian folklore, the Mongolian deathworm is considered a fearsome and dangerous creature, often treated with a mix of reverence and caution. Local nomads who have passed down stories through generations speak of the creature with a combination of respect and trepidation. It is believed that encountering the death worm is a bad omen, and tales of its deadly abilities have led to a sense of unease and respect for its supposed power. The creature's alleged deadly discharge has become an intrinsic part of its myth, adding to its mystique and the aura of danger surrounding it. The deathworm has found its way onto various aspects of Mongolian culture, from oral traditions and folklore to artistic depictions. It has also captured the attention of outsiders, including cryptozoologists and adventurers, who are drawn to the Gobi Desert in search of evidence that might validate its existence. Now, as we know, cryptozoology is the study of creatures whose existence is unverified or disputed, and it's, and it's spurred a significant amount of interest in the Mongolian deathworm. 
Over the years, various expeditions and investigations have been launched in an attempt to find evidence for the creature's existence. Some adventurers and researchers have ventured into the Gobi Desert armed with cameras, scientific equipment, and a sense of curiosity. However, despite numerous accounts and expeditions, concrete evidence for the Mongolian deathworm's existence remains elusive. Skeptics attribute reports to misidentifications, exaggerations, uh, and the fertile ground of imagination. Scientifically speaking, the harsh conditions of the Gobi Desert pose challenges for extensive exploration, and the creature's alleged abilities often defy the laws of biology and physics. Now, there are several theories that attempt to explain the origins of the Mongolian deathworm legend. Some researchers suggest that the account could be based on actual encounters with creatures such as large sand-dwelling or burrowing animals, like snakes, or even large worms. Others propose that the legend might be rooted in cultural beliefs, symbolizing the desert's dangers and the need for caution in a harsh environment. Furthermore, the Mongolian deathworm could also be a product of cross-cultural influences, where various elements from different sources merge to create a creature that fits the desert's mystique and the nomadic culture's narratives. The Mongolian deathworm remains a captivating and enigmatic cryptid, existing in the intersection of myth and potential reality. Its vivid descriptions, the aura of danger surrounding it, and the Gobi Desert's mystique have cemented its place in the realms of folklore and cryptozoology. Now, while the search for tangible evidence continues, the legend for the Mongolian deathworm serves as a testament to humanity's enduring fascination with the unknown, the untamed, and the mysteries that continue to beckon from the far corners of the world. There you go. A second killer cryptid in this episode. Are you, you are lucky. You are lucky little devils, aren't you? What, what have you ever done for me? Apart from listen to my episodes and give me a platform and provide me with a lot of joy throughout my week. What have you done apart from that, huh? Okay, moving on, guys. Final segment of the day. Again, we're doing something different. It's a very different episode. I was searching for uh, maybe some killer cryptid news, maybe some cryptid sightings, maybe someone saw the Loch Ness Monster or a Bigfoot or something like that, but I happened to come across um, a, a, an article posted this year, which is a cryptozoology quiz. Uh, so I thought we might do that live on air. Well, it's not live. You're listening to this later, but I'm doing it live. Um, so yeah, cryptozoology quiz, quiz. I'm not a cryptozoologist. I'm not an expert in anything, which I think we've been clear about uh, many times in the show, but let's see how we do. I'll read you the uh, questions and then give you a second to answer them and then I'll answer them and I'll tell you if I'm correct or not. So here we go. 20 tricky questions about the fascinating field of research that blends science and mythology. As researchers attempt to uncover the truth behind legends and folklore surrounding legends such as the Bigfoot, Chupacabra, and the Yeti. Okay. Are you ready for question one? Good. Question one. Who coined the term cryptozoology? Was it Bernard Huvelmans, Carl Schuka, or Loren Coleman? I think it was Bernard Huvelmans. It was Bernard Huvelmans. I win. Only 19 to go. In what year was the International Society of Cryptozoology founded? 1952, 1982, or 1892? What do you think? 52, 82, or 1892? I reckon 52. That's my guess. 
Incorrect. 1982 it was. The most recent one. There you go. Did you get that right? Question tres. Three. Three is tres, right? In French and Spanish. I don't even know. Okay. Question three. What is the name of the famous Loch Ness Monster sighting by George Spicer and his wife in 1933? Is it the doctor's photograph? The doc's photograph, similar but different, or the surgeon's photograph. Now, I think I know this. I'm pretty sure it's the surgeon's photograph. I'm, I am right. It's, I am correct. It is the surgeon's photograph. Hooray. Okay, so far, two out of three. Not bad. Oh, here we go. This one is very relevant. Number four. The Kraken is said to appear in the seas off the coast of which country? Morocco? Norway or Greece? If you get this wrong, I'm very disappointed. It is, of course... Norway. We knew that. Number five. What is the name of the shape-shifting creature said to live in Scottish folklore? Is it the Kelpie, the Nahulito, or the Yakumama? I don't know. I thought the Kelpie was like a horse-fish thing, but it's kind of the only one that... Uh, it's, it's the only one I've heard of, so I'm going to go Kelpie. Okay, what are you already hearing? Kelpie, Nahulito, or... Kakumama. I'm going to go Kelpie. Correct. It is the Kelpie. All right. There we go. Not doing too bad. I think I've only got one wrong so far. Okay. Question six. What is the name of the Cornish moor that is famous for sightings of a beast? Is it Bodmin Moor, Goss Moor, or Davidstrom Moor? I have never heard of any of that. It's just a guess at this point. Um... Let's go Gossmore. That's that's Gossmore. Incorrect. Bodmin Moore. Damn. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, question seven. What is the name of the water creature said to live in rivers and lakes of Japan? I don't know this one. Is it A, Kappa, B, Kipu, or C, Kepi? Kappa, Kipu, or Kepi? Um, I'm going to guess Kipu. Kipu. Kipu, incorrect, Kappa, damn it. Okay, now we're falling, the wheels are falling off. What is the name of the giant ape-like creature that lives in the Himalayas? The Orang Pedek, or Pendek, sorry, Orang Pendek, uh, Migwa, Mingwa, or Yeti? It's Yeti, or oh, that one's easy, it's definitely Yeti. Okay, it is the Yeti. What is the name of the creature that is said to be a hairy humanoid, humanoid cyclops found in the Amazon rainforest? Yeah, this is weird too. Uh, map, map in Guaria, Mapingara, Mapingara, the sea, Mapingara, Chonchon, or Yakumama. Yakumama again. That was from a question before. It's come back again, so maybe we go Yakumama because I don't know. Incorrect. Damn it. Mapingari. That's the one. Mapingari. Okay. Question ten. What is the name of the creature said to be a giant ape found in the Pacific North Northwest region of the United States? Sasquatch, Yeren, or Orang Pendek? I'm pretty sure it's Sasquatch, but I also, but I kind of thought Sasquatch was like a Canadian thing. But maybe it's, maybe it's the US. I think I'm thinking of Sasquatch because like, being Canadian because of Wolverine. Like, because this is me nerding out for a second. Wolverine was in a superhero group in Canada called like Alpha Flight, I think it was called. And in that team, there was like a superhero named Sasquatch. And he basically was just like a Sasquatch. Um, I'm going to say Sasquatch. 
It is Sasquatch. Okay, very good. All right, here we go. Uh, in what year did the term cryptozoology first appear in print? 1818, 1959, or 1895? Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say 1818, the earliest one. 1818. Oh, incorrect! It was the latest one. 1959. Wow, the, that's the first time cryptozoology came up in print. 1959. That is very recent. Damn. Okay, I'm completely wrong. Not doing too good today, guys. Okay. Question twelve. What is the name of the creature that is said to be a giant winged creature found in North America? You sh well, actually, this is interesting because there could be multiple answers here. A Mothman, B Thunderbird, or C Pterodactyl. Now, this is is this a trick question? Because the creature that's said to be a giant winged creature in North America. Mothman is supposed to be a giant winged creature in North America, but so is the Thunderbird, and the Pterodactyl was a real animal that I, I think was in North America um, that is extinct. I think I think they want us to say Thunderbird, um, but it could be more. I think they, I'm going to be really annoyed at this because this question is kind of poorly. I'm going to say Thunderbird. Correct. Okay, but that's weird because Mothman is also supposed to, so supposedly a giant winged creature that was found in like Virginia. So, uh, okay. Well, there you go. Thunderbird. We might have to do Thunderbird on the next Killer Cryptid episode. All right. Question thirteen. Got seven more to go. Uh, hold on. Here we are. In German folklore, oh god, German folklore, it's gonna get fucked, guys. In German folklore, what is the name of the creature that is said to be a cross-various cross animal, often including a rabbit, a squirrel, or a deer? Is it the Wolpertinger, Wolpertinger, Chupacabra, or the Pugwudgie? Pugwudgie, that's a cute name. Wolpertinger, Wolpertinger. I kind of said that in like a bit of an Indian accent. I'm trying to say them in German accents to see which one sounds real. Wolfertinga, uh, Pakwaji. I can't do it. It sounds Indian. Chupacabra. Okay, I think it's the first one. I think it's Wolfertinga. It's correct. It is. What's a Pakwaji? That's cute. I, let's look that up later. This is giving me a lot of ideas for episodes. Okay, question 14. We're nearly there. What is the name of the creature that is said to be a vampiric creature found in Latin America? Is it A, the Chupacabra? B, the Selma, or C, uh, Min, Minhokal, Minhokal, I, it's Chupacabra, we've done that before, Chupacabra, yay, Chupacabra is weird though, because, um, like, we spoke about it at length, I, I think on, like, the first Killer Cryptids episode, or, like, maybe the second, Chupacabra, like, there's very different interpretations of that legend, uh, but anyway, there we go, okay, 15, five to go, in, Oh, we've done this one before too. In British folklore, which of these is a name for a phantom dog-like creature? The Ningen, the Black Shark, or the Champ? It's the Black Shark. I knew that one. We've done a Black Shark. That was uh, suggested by a fan of the show. I'm blanking on the name right now. I'm so sorry. But yeah, there you go. Look. Look at us go. Look at us go. You and me. Okay. 16. Which of these is a beast named after the former French province where it's been spotted. We've done this one too. The Beast of Brittany, the Beast of Gévaudan, or the Beast of Normandy? It is 
The Beast of Jevaudan. Of course, that was one of our very early episodes. I don't even think it was a Killer Cryptid episode at that point. It was just a regular Maneaters episode. Uh, we believe that the, the, the Beast of Jevaudan was a wolf or some kind of wolf-dog hybrid or wolf, even like a wolf-hyena hybrid is, is a potential theory. Okay, question 17. Which... Uh, sorry, what is the name given to the two-legged flying creature that is said to inhabit the forest of states in the northeast of the USA? The Jersey Devil, the Mothman, or the Wendigo? I'm pretty sure that this is the Mothman. The, Jer the Jersey Devil uh, we've covered does not have wings, apparently. It doesn't fly, at least. And the Wendigo doesn't fly either, so I think it's got to be the Mothman, right? Oh, they want it. No, they're saying it's the Jersey Devil. Does the Jersey Devil fly? Is Virginia in the northeast? I guess it's like kind of more southeast. Because the 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 Mothman is a two-legged flying creature that inhabits forests in Virginia in the USA. Oh, in, okay, interesting. I that one surprises me. I really thought it was Mothman. Okay. In which country might you find the ape-like creature known as the Yowie? Australia, South Africa, or Costa Rica? This one's easy for me. It's Australia. We uh, have these little... You guys, well, Americans, uh, you're aware of the existence of Kinder, kinder Surprise eggs, uh, Kinder eggs. Uh, you can't have them because apparently they're not safe for children, but you can buy a fucking machine gun in the next aisle. Doesn't matter. Um, we have... Well, we have Kinder Eggs, so fuck you. But we also have these things called Yowies, which are like little chocolate uh, little guys. And inside they have a little toy. I love a Yowie. I might go and get a Yowie after this. That'd be great. Okay, two more questions left. Question 19. According to some stories, which cryptid is said to be created when a human resorts to cannibalism in order to survive? A. Kumari. B. Wendigo. Or C. Chimera. I do know this answer. It is the Wendigo. Oh, I love the Wendigo. Wendigo is one we should cover next. Okay. And here we go. Um, last question. Which of these is another field of study related to cryptozoology? Uh, is it cryptoarchaeology, cryptoheliology, or cryptobotany? I am, I have no idea. I'm cartology. Well, cartology is maps. Uh, we can work this out. Uh, yeah, so crypto is map. Uh, sorry, crypto car cartology is maps. So that doesn't seem right. What, a mythical map? Unless you're talking about like going to Atlantis. Crypto heliology. Um, helios means air, I'm pretty sure. Is that not right? The sky? Um, that doesn't make much sense to me either. And cryptobotany would be like the, the study of like unconfirmed plants. Like man, I know that there are, there are like theories about like man-eating plants out there. So I'm going to go cryptobotany. I reckon cryptobotany. I'm correct. Very good. Hooray. I got 14 out of 20 there, which is 70%, which is okay. Did all right. Got a few questions right. Um, but we've got a lot to go to get to hundred percent. What did you guys get? Uh, if you got better than 14 out of 20, let me know. Um, I'll also post the link, to, uh, the link to this quiz in the 
um, in the description of the podcast episode below or wherever you're looking at it. And uh, you can, um, yeah, you can do it yourself. That was fun. Very good. All right, gang, gangerang, that's going to be the uh, episode for today. A bit of a shorter one, um, but we got through a lot of stuff. We talked about the Kraken. We talked about the Mongolian Deathworm, and we had a little bit of a quiz. Fantastic. I want to thank you guys so much for listening and supporting the show. It means a lot. I've had a lot of messages coming through this week, which has been uh, really, really quite lovely. Obviously, people supporting us on the Patreon. We are nearly at 50,000 streams. We're like a couple a couple dozen away from it at this point, um, which is just like astounding. I, ne- I never thought this show would, would have that many people who have listened to it. That means that 50,000 people have listened to it. So we're nearly there. Um, and then obviously we'll, we'll be aiming for the next 100,000. Um, the episodes that... Uh, the, sorry, I just tripped over my own words. The beginning of this year, we said that one of the goals was to get to 50,000. Uh, and another goal was to reach uh, 80 episodes by the end of the year. We're on track to do that if I don't miss a single week, uh, which I don't think is reasonable. I think I'm going to probably miss a week. Uh, but that's okay. It seems to me that every time I do skip a week and post once a fortnight, uh, it seems to do better, actually. Like, people, more people listen to it. I don't know why that is the case. Uh, so uh, that might be, after we hit that 80-episode mark, that might be something we look at is, is doing these episodes once a fortnight. It obviously would mean that the episodes could be a bit longer because they'd have more time to research and all that, but that's just a, a thought for another time. I might bring it up in the 2023 Q&A, which will be happening in a few months, uh, and uh, I'll ask you your thoughts on that, and you can share your feedback. Uh, that's going to do it for today, everyone. Thank you so, so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. I I, um, yeah, not to get too sappy, but I, uh, I have a lot of people messaging me, a lot of people in my actual everyday life talking to me about the show, and I have a lot of pride about our little audience that we've built together, which is great. Uh, so yeah, of course, if you ever want to chat to me or ask any questions, suggest an animal for a regular episode or for a Killer Cryptids episode, or even a movie that we can watch for our Man Eater movies, you can do that. Uh, best way is to reach us on Instagram at Man Eaters Podcast uh, or at Jimothy Chaps, that's me as well. You can also send an email if that's more your speed, maneaterspod at gmail.com. We do have a Facebook, facebook.com slash maneaterspod. And there is a YouTube channel, but I think it's under my name, James Chapman. So uh, yeah, yeah, have a great week, everyone. Please stay safe, uh, because as we've learned, oh boy, it's a jungle out there.